Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review, and you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you are enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast on the medtech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. In this episode, our host, Giovanni Loricella, and our guest, Tamir Marie from JJDC, or Johnson & Johnson's Venture Arm, discuss corporate venture capital, the differences between corporate venture capital and traditional venture capital, the importance of timing and luck, what an average work week looks like for him, the support one would get from JJDC beyond just money, the different geographies they invest in, how much they typically invest, timing for a startup to actually have the money hit their bank account, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Tamir Marie. Thank you very much for joining us here today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. I'm excited about this one, JJDC, Johnson & Johnson's venture arm. It's obviously one of the Goliaths of the world in terms of medical devices and certainly companies in general, and really looking forward to understanding more about this corporate venture piece, which we'll dig into. And so um, wanted just to start off with, the fact that I've talked with medtech entrepreneurs and investors around the world at this point, and I've discovered, at least for me, that there's no silver bullet specific formula or even magic about how to raise or invest capital in medtech. So my goal here is I wanted to extract insights in order to demystify this process. And so we can help medtech innovators benefit from this information as well. And so the, the audience typically listening in here is a mixture between entrepreneurs and investors from the medtech space and I'd like to share your stories with what I imagine is that first time founder or CEO and has no clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced professionals and investors like yourself so we can teach them. Going back to why we're here again, we're just going to blow up this whole topic of corporate venture capital and really understanding the differences and nuances between where does corporate venture capital fall in the spectrum of available capital to entrepreneurs in the medtech space and some of those differentiators between corporate venture and then institutional investors like traditional venture capitalists, even at the stages and, they, and how they vary. So we'll talk about all that. Um, obviously getting into your background coming up very shortly, but before we do that, I have a few open questions that I'd like to ask you just to warm up the conversation. The sure, first sure. one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a medtech startup why or why not? Or would you add anything? Yeah, well, I think, you know, lifeblood of any startup really is not just in medtech is, is really the people in the team. And, you know, uh, whether it's the entrepreneur or the, the team spirit and sort of their personal belonging to that story, whether it's a specifically in medtech and, and in medical and healthcare, a personal connection to that condition, whether it's a family member or a personal trauma. And, and I think most of the entrepreneurs have suffered some sort of um you know, trauma or uh, uh, an unfortunate story related to the story of that startup. 
Um, so I, I think that's that's sort of a um, a big essential part of, of any startup, really, more so even in med tech. Um, I think in, in terms of money, yeah, I mean, realistically, you can't really start a company without having any money, right? Even if you're bootstrap, you need some funds. Uh, but I think, you know, nowadays, outside of just, you know, pure VC investments, um, maybe not so much in the US, uh, but somewhat in Europe and in Israel, which has been my, my sort of breeding ground uh, just before moving here, um, there is quite a lot of non-dilutive funding, both government and sort of European Union and, and some grants from various organizations, um, which is obviously essential. And, and a lot of that plays in, into the success of those companies. Uh, but I think it really is like like a lot of things in life, you know, quite a, a significant combination of both is, is required to, to make things work um, in startups, more so in medtech. And you work for a large conglomerate, a big, big company in the world, and they've made numerous acquisitions and in various fields um, of these startups who ultimately had to get invested in by other venture capitalists or, or traditional capital, whatever it may be. But this notion of these market dynamics that we play in, and also just the hard grind and the grit of people who have to show up, whether it's the big companies or small companies. Um, I like having a little fun with this one. Do you believe in luck? And does luck play into med tech in any capacity? Yeah. Open-ended question, your thoughts. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in um, sort of the right timing, which I think luck is another way to put timing, right? So I think luck plays into a lot of things in life, not just in, in med tech. Um, it could be in, in career perspectives, in, you know, uh, relationships, um, even in, in getting a house, right? Um, so I think it's, it's really um, a big deal in anything in life. Um, so even, even inclusive of, of med tech in general. So I think it's, it's really a combination of luck and timing. Um, and I can you know, maybe, maybe share some, some stories without naming names. You know, we've had um, several companies in the past where we had looked and you know, for, for that time didn't have a specific strategic interest, but we, we thought you know, the team was good and the product looked interesting. So we should you know, continue following up. And you know, when the time was right, both for us and the company, uh, we ended up either investing or, or, you know, sometimes even acquiring the company through one of our operating companies. So, you know, I, I would say it's really a timing issue, but, you know, as we said previously, you know, timing is, is luck and luck is timing in a sense. So I think it is very important to be successful. Um, but, you know, it's, I think it's just a part of life, really nothing I could, you know, necessarily say is, is relevant just to med tech or, or startups in general. And you brought up this point that is going to lead me to my next question. You talked about following up with teams and looking at the teams and assessing the teams. As an investor, when you look at these startups, what is the most investable skill set or characteristics of a med tech entrepreneur? Or in other words, what is that one thing that you look for in every entrepreneur that you ultimately invest in? Is there something yeah. that radiates? So, I mean, I, I can't necessarily say there's one thing, um, you know, if, if you could compare sort of entrepreneurship and investing uh, to, to relationships and, and romance in a sense, right? I, I can't necessarily say that, um, you know, I had a specific characteristic uh, that I liked in my wife versus hundreds characteristics, right? So 
I think it, it sort of the must haves, let's put it that way for, for entrepreneurs in medtech, I think is, is, you know, perseverance, which I think is important and, and same goes for, you know, farm entrepreneurs and digital health. And I'd say mostly in general entrepreneurs, because, you know, you, you, you try and try and you fail and you dust yourself off and try again. And I think that's, that's a real big part of that. And, you know, if, as, as an entrepreneur, you know, they could, go through multiple rounds of, of pitching to VCs and get a no answer, but that sort of improves the, the pitch later on for the second and third time. And by the 100th iteration, it's a really good pitch. And the same goes for, you know, meeting with FDA and FDA could say, hey, we don't like this pre-submission. Could you change X, Y, and Z so it fits more of our guidelines and then you change X and they, you know, come in with a new iteration. So I think perseverance is, is key, I think, for any entrepreneur to succeed. I think the other part of it is, is I'd say trust and openness. And I think that's really important, especially coming from, from a corporate venture uh, capital. Uh, but that goes without saying that's probably relevant for any other investor. And I think, you know, trust and, and being open is, and honest is really important sort of as a, as a daily thing for me uh, in life, regardless of what I'm doing, even more so in, in investing and entrepreneurship. And I think a lot of the times, you know, all the legal agreements are, are sort of uh, left there for a rainy day. But realistically, you'd like to have uh, an ongoing relationship that is not dictated by legal agreements, right? That the, the entrepreneur and the CEO and the founder, they would want to communicate with you. They want to have you involved, both on the board, both as a strategic investor, um, that would probably enable success down the road, both of the relationship and of the company. So I think that's key. I love that humanness that you added to that, even, you know, taking away all the legal agreements. So uh, thank you for that color. Um, then leading into all this experience that you've had as being an investor and all the entrepreneurs that you've had the fortune of assessing and working with, if you knew what you know now about being a med tech investor, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Would you choose to do something differently because you realized how hard this is? But, and even though it's fun, but it's just a super grind or do you just love what you do? Yeah. So, I mean, the other way to frame it is, is as shiny as it looks. Right. And <laughs> I think the answer is, is maybe, right. It really depends on, on each and every one. I can certainly only speak for myself or maybe some of my colleagues that I've worked with both at JGDC and, and other VCs. Um, I think, you know, Similar to a lot of things, you can't really compare somebody else's highlight reel to the play-by-play. So, you know, most stories that are being shared publicly are the success stories, right? You're seeing all the acquisitions and the investments and the, the big PRs, but what's not being publicized, and it's regardless if it's JJDC or any other, you know, corporate and any other VCs are the failures, right? And, and, you know, sometimes you would hear those through the grapevine and through ecosystems, but these exist and it's, it's really a part of life. And I think one of the things that are ingrained uh, specifically in Israelis, but, but more so in, in entrepreneurs in general is, is the ability to fail and, and consider failure as a learning experience, right? So I think through, through my eight and a half years at J&J, um, I've, I've had my fair share of, of failures as an investor, as a board member, um, which I think have been probably the best learning experience more so than the successes, I think. Um, but I do think in terms of um, doing this job as, as, a, as a VC investor, uh, sure, it does have its privileges, especially coming from a corporate VC. Um, but I, I probably wouldn't trade it for anything else at this point. 
Um, you know, it, it has its fair challenges. And most of these challenges come from, you know, relationships and working with people because we're not necessarily very binary in the sense of yes or no. There is sort of a spectrum to a lot of things. And um, this really could create some challenges, whether it's J&J speaking to the company or just sort of interpersonal challenges within the board. Uh, but I think recognizing that almost any person is different and any company is different is really providing a different challenge every day by, by managing those relationships of those portfolio companies and those um, you know, investment targets. And you know, if I could maybe look at the, the deals I have on the table nowadays or the portfolio companies I have on my table nowadays, they are all so different from each other, both on stage, geography, interests of the business, um, you know, pathway forward, that it's, it's really um, a good challenge for you to have on a daily basis to, to basically treat every company as a new learning experience. So I think I, I probably wouldn't pick a different pathway if I had the choice to do it today. Uh, could I have done other steps along the way? Sure. Uh, but, you know, we're all very uh, good and having hindsight as a 2020, right? So um, I, I would say it's, it's probably not as glamorous as it looks, but it's very interesting and challenging to say the least. So I, I love it. I, I don't know if you're a fan of the podcast series or not, but uh, you definitely led me to my next question, not only with the illusion of the first thing that you said about, is it as shiny as it looks? And that's how you opened it. And then you actually used the word glamour. So my next question actually, which I also love learning about because it just, it demystifies what it really means to be either a med tech CEO or investor when people think it is so glamorous, who aspire to be and who aren't. So my next question is, is it glamorous being a med tech investor? And let me follow up with a, a, a question B that might follow it better or define it better. Like what does an actual work week look like or day for to me? Yeah. You, yeah. you know, when we think about you hold the purse of this big corporate giant, or if you're coming from a traditional VC and you get to sit on a throne and just point your finger and be like, oh, I like <laughs> that technology. I'm going to give you 500 grand and you 5 million and you 15 million, right? And and that's cool to a lot of people. So de-glamorize de it for us. What's a yeah. week for you? That, that, that would have been, you know, a, a very good comical relief for me, really, um, and made my life a lot easier. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I believe in challenging yourself. So I, you know, I probably wouldn't survive doing that for, for more than a week. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I alluded to this before, right? It's not as glamorous as it looks, but I mean, j and is a great company. I love working for them. I mean, I've, I've been here eight and a half years. Um, so, you know, and then you'll see with a lot of j and they're long timers because it's a really good company to work with. Um, and I think realistically, there are challenges of, of working at a corporate VC. Um, you know, we, we have to have some strategic buy-in, um, but I think that ensures success when we invest mostly, uh, both in terms of, you know, the involvement from the business and from us on the board. So, um, and, and we'll probably go into that later, but I think that that sort of, um, key here in terms of framing how our day-to-day -day works, right? We are in partnership with our operating companies, working with their um, stakeholders and their strategies to say, okay, is this of interest, yes or no? And how high of a priority this is in terms of how much we invest outside of capital, right? In terms of effort, in-kind support, you know, connecting them with the various people in the organization. Um, in terms of, you know, how a, a week looks like or how a day looks like. So I am currently, um, we haven't gotten into this, but I transitioned into California uh, three and a half months ago from Israel. 
where in Israel I covered, um, you know, all three sectors for J&J, and we covered med devices and, and consumer in Europe. And I moved here to, to California, where I'm covering only med devices on the West Coast. So uh, I'm still sort of managing a bit of my Israeli-European portfolio as well. So my day is kind of hectic at this point, starting very early a.m. Uh, with some Israeli-European uh, calls and, and ending uh, late in the afternoon here in California. Uh, but normally, I'd say on a regular basis, um, you know, COVID restrictions uh, lifted, let's take that ideally situation, um, is I'd say probably 70% portfolio and 30% uh, deal flow um, in terms of new pipeline and new deals. Whereas, um, you know, this obviously fluctuates during the year, you could have, you know, a specific week where, where we would have three, four deals on the table at any given moment. Um, but, but I would say um, I normally have like a board every week or two weeks, give or take. Um, I currently have a, a slightly slimmer portfolio because we've had some exits um, in, in, my, um, in my portfolio. Uh, but I would have a, a, a sort of a board connect or a full board every week or so. And then, um, you know, when there, there is a deal on the table, we would be very active in diligence, uh, both on the sort of clinical, corporate, you know, scientific side of things. Um, we have an investment committee every two weeks. So, you know, if we are presenting a deal, that is something to prepare in terms of, you know, both materials, but also to actually present and get all the support. And um, I try, I'm, I'm a very... Um, friendly, I'd like to think, person. So I, I try to be very much out there, both in conferences and meeting people, uh, even more so nowadays when I'm in the stages of creating my network almost from scratch here in, on the West Coast. So um, you know, trying to meet with a bunch of uh, VC partners, industry leaders, be the entrepreneurs or just people who know and move and shake the businesses. Um, and I'm a big proponent, by the way, of, of meeting our competitors, right? So, you know, normally um, you'd say that med tech is a very sort of cutthroat competitive area. And um, some people would say, yeah, and, you know, J&J &J and Medtronic, they can never work together. I, I strongly disagree. I think we should be meeting our counterparts with Medtronic on the VC side and on the BD side. Yeah, we may not share our confidential stuff and they may not share theirs, but, you know, uh, I think you know, best practices and just, you know, meeting the people is very important. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, our competition is going to be good for the patients, right? So I'm, I'm a big proponent of meeting your, your competitors, be they direct or not. So um, I, I'd say nowadays, I spend probably 20 to 25% of my week um, just meeting new people that I haven't met before, uh, which is great. Um, challenging a bit in, in COVID days, but, you know, still fun to do. Love that. Love that. And, and I have to plead ignorance on this one. After all the years I've been in the med tech industry, um, you see the name Johnson & Johnson, and it's also a consumer goods name as well. It's, you can find it in the stores and everywhere. But whether we learn what Johnson & Johnson is, and I don't know the background story behind the name, um, or JJDC, but what does the name of your company mean, Johnson & Johnson or JJDC? Yeah. So, I mean, the company was, you know, originally formed in, in the days of the, the Civil War in the 1800s. Uh, so um, our, our departing CEO, Alex Gorski, uh, liked to call it, you know, a 130 something year startup. Right. And I think it's a very nice uh, positioning for the company. Um, so in terms of who we are and what we do. Right. So JJDC or as we are officially known as Johnson Johnson Innovation, JJDC Inc., 
uh, it's a mouthful, uh, is really the corporate venture arm J&J. So we are, I think, the first corporate venture arm ever formed. We'll be celebrating our 50th anniversary next year. Um, and the way we are structured is, you know, we are effectively tasked with strategically deploying venture capital to support the global community. And, you know, the, the, the way we do is we need to work with our operating partners in J&J based on their strategies to invest in assets that we would like to see onboarded into J&J down the road when they hit a specific milestone, right? So sure, we're investors like any other investor. We would put money, capital into the company. We provide a lot of support both on the board, but outside of the board as well. And we could, you know, bring in internal knowledge we have in J&J from, you know, regulatory, clinical, manufacturing, commercialization, if the company obviously wills it to be, right? Um, and help the company build itself up on top of just, you know, putting money into the company. So um, we, I strongly believe and JGDC strongly believes in, in partnership and long-term partnerships and, you know, leveraging the capabilities that we have in J&J based on the company's needs to really suit and, and, and you know, bring that asset company to a better position by having JJDC or J&J as an investor. Um, we are actually part of a, a bigger group within J&J called J&J Innovation, which effectively is comprised of four buckets, let's call it that way, which some of you may know is, you know, J-Labs, the Innovation Centers, JJDC, and then our Jens and BD colleagues who mostly handle our later stage um, activity. So J-Labs, everybody knows, you know, that's our um, global network of incubators. We're all around the world from Shanghai to, to Belgium, to the East Coast, to the West Coast. Um, and there are plenty of companies there. Uh, the model is, you know, we don't have any uh, strings attached to those companies. If they would like to, we're certainly happy to, to invest in them if they're strategically aligned. But the model is based on, you know, having not necessarily a strategic connection to any company coming in, right? It's, it's effectively a, a service that the companies pay for, right? Like an incubator. And then we have our innovation centers where, you know, they're geographically focused. So we have one in Shanghai covering Asia, one in London covering Europe, where Israel is a satellite of, one in Boston covering the East Coast uh, of North America, and then the one here in San Francisco covering the West Coast of North America. And these groups are effectively tasked with leveraging all the scientific knowledge in those innovation centers to facilitate earlier stage deals with our partners in our pharmaceuticals, consumer and med devices group. So most of these deals would not necessarily be equity. Actually, most of them would not be equity, uh, but could be with an equity component. So these would be you know, R&D collaborations, research, um, you know, various licenses or, or things like that. So that would be facilitated sometimes by the IC. And then we also have JJDC in those ICs. So we usually have representatives covering a specific sector for a specific geography in those innovation centers. So for example, myself, I'm based in, in our uh, West North America innovation center here in, in San Francisco, and I cover med devices on the West Coast. But similarly, we have med device colleagues in Boston covering the East Coast and in Israel and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's sort of how we are structured. Um, to your question after this long um, intro, JJDC, uh, how we were originally called uh, before the Johnson Johnson Innovation Formation was uh, Johnson Johnson Development Corporation. And I think that's still very much ingrained um, in our mentality and philosophy. We try to develop new ideas and new companies to be brought into J&J &J and help J&J &J develop as a corporate as well.
Very cool. Well, thank you for that introduction. And, and also that helped out lead me into when we finally get to JJDC, what you guys focus in on, you gave some color. I'll ask a few more pinpointed questions just to pull out some other things, but we'll get there in a second. Lo and behold, the man behind the voice, Tamir Meiri, tell us who you are, where you came from. You already mentioned you're from Israel. Now you're over in San Francisco, so spoiler alert, but tell us who you are as a person, as a, as a professional. How did you build your life and your career um, through academics, through your, your professional career to ultimately land up at JJDC as now the West Coast of um, Venture Investments as the director? So just tell us who you sure. are. So um, in terms of the story, so as you said, started in Israel, um, you know, I in Israel, all of us go through compulsory military service. So I was a uh, combat engineer and then a um, combat medic. So um, did uh, quite a few years of that and then was a medics instructor in the military as well. And normally the um, pathway for medics is actually go to med school, which I had attempted to do for uh, more than three and a half years of my life, you know, doing a bunch of SATs, unfortunately, unsuccessfully. Um, and sort of ended up uh, doing biomedical engineering and physical chemistry in, in Tel Aviv University, uh, being some sort of a physics geek, but also very passionate with, with healthcare. Um, through the course of trying to get accepted into med school and um, also being a student in my bachelor's degrees, I've had the benefit of working one of the largest law firms in Israel, um, not as a lawyer, but uh, sort of as a non-legally trained article clerk, if you will. <laughs> Um, and back then, I think that firm represented quite a sizable chunk of the Israeli healthcare um, ecosystem, including VCs, startups, multinationals, etc. So I had a lot of exposure to that uh, perspective, both on the business side, but just in terms of people in the ecosystem as well. Um, and then I, I effectively applied to an analyst role at JGDC, which was uh, an opening I saw in one of the uh, alumni groups. Uh, luckily enough, I got it. <laughs> And I uh, really started as an analyst within, within a group. So I was supporting a VP in Israel and a VP in London, um, effectively doing a lot of the dirty work related to the investment. So anywhere from market analysis, due diligence, investment memos, you name it. And then um, three and a half years later, transitioned into an investor role within the fund, which meant I would still be doing a lot of the dirty work, but this time it would be for me and my own portfolio rather than somebody else. Um, so through the course of those um, eight years or so in Israel, um, I covered far med device and consumer in Israel, and then also covered med device and consumer in Europe together with my esteemed uh, former manager, Zev Zahavi, who's still based in Israel. And, um, you know, we've done quite a lot of investments, both on, on the European front and the Israeli front. Uh, some of them are known, some of them are, are less known and uh, had some success with some onboardings of our uh, Israeli and European companies, even more so uh, Orthospin, which was done at the end of 2021, which is a personal uh, story for me because that was one of my portfolio companies that ended up being acquired. So a big deal for me and actually represents J&J's first acquisition in Israel in 13 years. So that quite, quite a, a, a good story for me. Um, and then uh, four months ago, give or take, had the opportunity to transition here to the west of North America to cover uh, the West Coast, but also Australia, which is under our purview um, as, as a medtech investor. So um, quite, a, quite a long journey so far. 
Um, but you know, it's, it's just beginning this new chapter of, of that story. So hopefully uh, I'll have a lot of stories to tell the next time we do this podcast um, after a few years <laughs> in this role. Um, but sort of personally, uh, for those who don't know me, um, I'm an avid runner, um, unfortunately now suffering from a, a very long-term injury on my uh, tendon. So taking it a bit slow, uh, I'm a metalhead. I grew on, on heavy metal. So um, I like that very much. And then also uh, loving quite a lot of pastries and sweets and cooking. So uh, California <laughs> presents a good opportunity for a foodie at this point. Well, I mean, I've been to Israel many, many times too. You can't knock on the Israeli food. You guys have some of the best food I've ever had. So you've been yeah. blessed with going from one foodie place to the next, at least in my opinion. Um, but thank you very much for the introduction. And, and you've, you've given us a really nice overview of J&J and certainly JJDC and where you guys fall. Um, I do want to just ask this next intro question, but have it hyper-focused now that you've given us such a high-level overview already. When it comes to Johnson & Johnson and med tech or medical devices. You've mentioned that you've been a part of assessing deals throughout your career there um, with pharma, med tech, and consumer. Let's scratch away all of the other stuff that JJDC does. And for the, for the sake of this podcast, at least, let's focus on just what med tech means for J&J. Um, what does it actually first and foremost mean in terms of representing the company? Like when you say the words Johnson & Johnson out loud, encompassing everything that J&J does, how much actually is MedTech involved in that? And then when we get there, just quickly segue over to the actual JJDC portion of the investment side and just have everything focus on MedTech. Yeah. So, I mean, representing J&J is a big story, right? It's a big company. You know, we're almost 140,000 employees and we, we basically are representing almost any country in the world. So you are representing a, a, a behemoth of, of a company. Um, and, and I think a lot of, uh, things come with it, um, mainly positive, I'd say. So, um, you know, at, at least in Israel, and I think in the US, uh, I've had um, very good reputation uh, representing J&J. So everybody wants to talk to you, everybody wants you to, to be involved in a company, or at least assess a company. And I think that that shows the power, right? I think uh, President Biden showed a, um, a nice not to, to put politics in, but I really like to quote nice sayings in his inaugural speech. He said, let's lead by the power of our example, not by the example of our power. And I think that is a really strong saying. And I think J&J has been a good company to show that by the power of example, you could actually show the company's mentality and, and strength. So I, I think we've been very good on that front. Um, in terms of how MedTech represents it. So I think, you know, I, I can't necessarily single out MedTech versus Pharma, but I think Ever since the formation in Johnson Johnson Innovation in 2013, we've been very strong on, on external innovation, you know, in partnering and in investing and in acquiring, and that goes sort of across the board. And I think even more so in MedTech, where we've onboarded, you know, quite a, a unique set of platforms, whether it's, you know, robotics through, um, you know, Verb and Oris and, and OrthoTaxi and, and most recently OrthoSpin. And uh, even more so in, in other assets in, in orthopedics and, and sort of general surgery and, and cardiovascular that, you know, we've onboarded geographically in, you know, China and, and Europe and, and U.S., some disclosed, some undisclosed. So I think we've, we've been very adamant in, in identifying things that we either cannot do or need to do internally and require us to partner with others, whether it's, you know, an academic institution, whether it's a startup, whether it's another big corporate, 
and and sort of try and find the right solution to bring that in, whether it's as a company or as an asset or just a license. Um, I think otherwise, you know, the way we work really enables us some flexibility, right? And that maybe goes to a segue of, of how we do what we do and why we do it, right? So the benefit we have is, you know, we're investing off of J&J's balance sheet. So we're not a fund that is limited to a certain amount of money, right? We, we are an evergreen fund. So that enables us some, some freedom to do in terms of investing per stage or per size, uh, even though we, we, I don't want to say we have a sweet spot, but we do have sort of an average. Uh, but we could do anything from you know, company formation by investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in forming a company all the way to pipes and public companies to support you know, BD deals with you know, uh, triple digit millions, right? Um, so we've done what these before. That, what is that sweet spot then? I mean, if, if you can do the full spectrum, just so all those listeners in, what is the sweet spot? Well, I mean, normally, and, and please don't interpret this as sort of a, a limit, sort of an upper or lower limit. I'd say most of the investments we do are falling in the one to 10 million, but you know, we've done below one and we've done above 10, right? So um, it, it really goes to the circumstances of the deal. If we need to lead and be a bit more aggressive to get access to the company, we'll be more aggressive and we'll lead and, and take a bit more of the round, whether the round is you know, 15, 20, 30, or 50. Um, so in terms of where we see the benefit, I think we lead about 40, 40-ish percent of our deals, right? Across all three sectors. And I think in med devices is probably the same. Um, I think it's, it's, it's important to sort of play by the rules, right? So I, I'm a big, you know, advocate of, you know, talking to your syndicate partners or talking to the existing investors to see, you know, what is digestible and what is not. It's in the sense that some would say, we'd like you to be involved, but we don't want you to lead, or we want you to lead because we show we think it will show a good sign for the company that J&J is taking the lead in the next investment round. So I think it's it's really important to, to sort of lean in when it's requested and not lean in when it's not requested. Sort of understand your your weight in the room or sort of your presence in the room to say, we shouldn't be too aggressive if, if it's not wanted or less aggressive if it is not wanted as well. Um, but in terms of sort of sweet spot, that's that's where it is. Um, in terms of what we did in the previous year, which I could maybe share that statistic. So we did a bit more than $175 million uh, of investments. Uh, that included 56 new companies and then follow-on investments as well. And then uh, in terms of portfolio, right, we, we've been out for quite some time. So we have a sizable uh, portfolio of above 150 companies um, active at, at that moment. Wow. Wow. And so just to kind of summarize this, you do full spectrum on the investment side, uh, global, right? So it doesn't matter where Correct. they are located. Typically, I'm assuming a lot of them are in the major markets, but truly global. Um, and when it comes to medical device, class one, class two, class three? I mean, do you guys get involved in the crazy implantable stuff in addition to the one-off disposable who's barely classified as a class one? Yeah, so yeah, you're right. So um, I think what guides us really at the end of the day is the strategic interest, right? And it doesn't matter to us if it's in Israel or Shanghai or California for that matter, right? The, the best class asset what is what would be of interest to us. So we can invest realistically at a seed stage or a, a do a pipe if we need to in a public company. I'd say we're, we're statistically where most of our investments in med device go is to sort of series A to series C situation where there is a bit more of a validation and de-risking of the platform and technology. 
Uh, but we have done our fair share of, of PMA class three medical devices, and we've done our fair share of class one, class two, you know, simple quote unquote 510Ks. Um, I, I, I can't necessarily say that the regulatory classification um, justifies um, a challenge level because we've had, you know, 510Ks where clearance was easy, but then getting into market was significantly more difficult. And PMA, while it took more money and more time, was easier to get into market sometimes. So we, we've done uh, probably the entire spectrum, both in terms of you know, size, stage, um, class type of situation. But what sort of the, the common thread among all of those would be, you know, we had strong strategic support from the operating company to pursue an investment with, I'd say, clear onboarding strategy to support that investment as well. Now, did onboarding always happen? No, because you know that that you know, requires certain circumstances both on our end, the company's end, and you know competitors as well. Sometimes end up nabbing the company we invested in, which is you know the rules of the game. Uh, but I, I think that you know success is probably determined by the company and not by J and J necessarily. So. So I, I have this one question that I just can't wait to ask, um, but there are these other questions that are following up to everything that we have been alluding to, or at least discussing right now. So I, let me get these out of the way, hopefully as quickly as possible. Um, I know that there's, when it comes to MedTech, you've, you've done everything from neuro companies out of Ireland, which you acquired years ago, to um, Oris or Verb, and, and you have these surgical robotics, right? And, and, and all of the other Orthospin, like you mentioned, all these other styles of technology that come in between. I, I guess if, and I'll use the politically incorrect, if, if you're not prejudiced against the stage of company, the size of check, because you could literally get involved into company formation through pipes, as you mentioned, um, is the only differentiator as to what J&J would look at is, is it, if it is an M&A style deal for the future or potential strategic interest for the future? Because I have talked to other CVCs, corporate venture capital um, divisions before, and, they, and they've, they've taught me a lot, uh, meaning something new and, and a new way of thinking about it, where um, they're very open about the fact that they're not investing simply to build an M&A pipeline for their fund or for their company, their mother company, if you will. Um, oftentimes there's a, there's a strategic interest where they're simply making investments to learn about a technological field. And obviously if it, if it leads to an M&A, great, but that's not like the forefront situation. I've talked to other CVCs where it's like, that's all we do. I mean, if there's no strategic interest where we're eventually hoping to acquire the company, if it's successful, then we're not going to invest in that. Our goal is to kind of build up our pipeline. So you see almost like this dichotomy between building up a pipeline and like, if it happens, great, but realistically, it's almost for like an educational situation of investing in things and seeing what that landscape of innovation looks like. Where does J&J fall? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at any two CVCs, right, whether it's in the med tech space or even in form, I can't necessarily say they're identical, right? But both because of the mentality of the company and also because of the just the charter that the CVC has gone from corporate, right? So I'd say we we are one 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 of our first priorities would be sort of onboarding, right? How do we get those assets into J and J? And onboarding can mean anything from you know pure M and A of a company an asset acquisition, a license agreement, distribution agreement sometimes, right? It doesn't have to be a, a full-fledged company M&A, especially in like form where you would sometimes just want to buy a specific asset, not the entire platform. Um, so, so that's one thing. I think the other part is 
I think really any investment is a learning experience, regardless of, of the acquisition uh, target, yes or no. So, for example, if you'd look at our uh, some of our consumer investments, a lot of those over the years have been in sort of digital therapeutics. And this is really a capability we hardly have internally in consumer. So that would necessarily be a learning experience, right? I think uh, for Orthospin, right, the one that was a very clear onboarding, I'd say, almost from, from day one of the investment, this is a capability. Sure, we have robotics in, in Oris and we have robotics in Verb, but could we have built that product internally? Probably, but it probably would have taken more time because we're a corporate and this is a startup. So I think even by acquiring a company at the end of the day, that would be considered a, a really significant learning experience, not just by bringing capabilities that you didn't have internally, but also by learning how to you know, de-risk things through a different outlook or just bringing in various capabilities from you know, other paradigms of tech, right? So I, I think a lot of, of this is, is learning through other means, as in not just investing to learn without a clear target, but also learning through the acquisition target or through the acquisition process of what could be done, even just in the technical aspect of the acquisition process, right? Everything is a learning experience. So I think that's that's one part of it. Um, do we invest in, in other companies that are learning experiences? Sure. I mean, we have done investments in, let's say, the more software related areas where you know our capabilities internally are not of a software company, right? J&J is not a software company. Um, so we are using that as a learning experience through various partnerships that may be sort of on the side of the investment agreement or even on the side of a BD agreement where we would ask for license and, and equity would be a component of a BD deal. Um, but I would say for us, we're very uh, laser focused in terms of having support from sort of an opco uh, chairman, business, business unit manager would say, I like this, I want to own this down the road. And I think that is, is very clear to us, specifically on the medtech side, as to what would be a milestone, what would be a timeline for us to invest. Um, and even when we don't end up acquiring the companies, I think that would be a very good learning experience for us as to how things can move around right or left, um, up or down. Um, so I think as, as long as you treat it as a learning experience, um, that would be one in a sense. I very much so agree with that statement. I, I think both positive and negative, my life, both personally and professionally, I look at everything as a learning experience. So um, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's always a way path or, or right. I should say a path to the way forward. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, just going back to the sweet spot, I, I want to keep on breaking down these walls. Uh, I have to thank Renee Ryan, who's now currently the CEO of Kala Health, formerly with JJDC. Um, Which I met earlier this week, by the way. <laughs> she's a wonderful human being and, and taught me a lot. And actually, we had her on the podcast series here. She was actually the very first who was all three of what this podcast series represents, which is an entrepreneur, investor, and a third party, which could be a facilitator, which she was an investment banker. She started off her career as an investment banker, then became an investor with JJDC, and now she's running Kala Health. Um, but she was the one that let me know, which I had never known before, that some of the reasons why corporates invest only a certain amount um, into startup companies is this 20% threshold. And then I ended up learning a little bit more about that and flushing it out with a couple more people. But I wanted to learn in terms of like the strategy, you mentioned once again, going from everything from, you know, company formation to pipes. So um, how much does this whole, you said the sweet spot is like one to 10 million and I'm not holding you to that. But like, when you think about this, 
How much does that hold you to when you make an investment in the company? Do you guys really try to tear that line of not taking over 20% of the company just so you can keep it off the, the gap books? So I, I wouldn't say it's it's a deal breaker per se, right? And, you know, we, and, and when you lead a, a company, um, a company's fundraising, you could obviously have the liberty of, of setting the valuation together with the company to make sure the numbers work, right? Um, so obviously you, you have more freedom when you're creating a new company, but even in an existing company, you know, they would obviously have the interest of increasing valuation, mainly for the founders and the, the employees and maybe even the previous investors. Um, and I, I'd say that we try to sort of make sure all the numbers work from that perspective. So as sort of a um, guideline, we obviously um, want to be below that 20%. Um, and there are various, you know, accounting considerations to that outside of just ownership, right, in terms of you know, strategic rights. And, and you know, every, every company has its own playbook, right? I know of our, uh, some competitors of ours who do invest and are not that weary of having, you know, 20% plus, plus, you know, strategic rights because they're aware of that um, consideration. But I think we've, we've had instances where we went above 20 and sometimes even significantly above 20 when it was clear, you know, this was going to be a, a very high priority acquisition um, and, you know, having ownership, high ownership in a company means something, right? not just by having a specific number of votes on the board, but also shareholder uh, voting power. The other part of it is, is really, you know, when you do go about that number is that has some sort of a hit to your PL. And, you know, in, in some cases it's major, in some cases it's minor. I think if it's minor, it may be digestible to, to, to JGDC and the operating company, as long as onboarding is, is clear in terms of pathway and timeline. When it's less clear and it's sort of a long-term situation, uh, probably less so. But I think what really dictates is, 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 is size of portfolio, right? If you're taking, you know, uh, a hit on your PL on 150 portfolio companies, that's you know quite a sizable hit every every quarter or every year to take. Um, and I think because of, of size of portfolio, one of the things we're trying to to avoid is you know heavy management of, of the accounting perspective of that. So. Uh, doing that sort of below 20% guideline enables us sort of easier management financially, I'd say. I'm going to ask this question sensitive to time because I still have more questions, but I don't want to lose the opportunity of not asking this question. Um, j is a big company. Corporate venture capitalists exist with multiple companies, Medtronic, Boston Scientific, they all have venture arms. Um, from what you know in terms of any of the frustrations of going through the process. Put yourself in the entrepreneur's seat for a second. You have different capabilities of taking on capital to raise your startup. You could do angels, you could do traditional VCs or institutional VCs, family offices, corporate venture plays an option, right? So you guys are an option. Um, I wanna get a little bit, I wanna add a, an extra shot of espresso onto our conversation right now. Um, what are the downsides of taking on corporate venture capital money from a med tech CEO's perspective or a med tech entrepreneur's perspective? Why wouldn't I want to go CVC? Well, I mean, specifically for med tech, right? Med tech, and, and that goes, I think, for, for almost all of our competitors as well. Um, I don't want to say it's a bias, but there's sort of a tendency to go later stage, right? So, um, you know, the, the way the, the the ecosystem and sort of the industry evolved is, you know, there's still a pretty high risk in anything that is preclinical or let's say pre-first in man. Um, and that, that probably goes to say for, for most of the, the, the med tech investor CVCs. 
Um, and, and, and I think that's, that sort of guides how most of the entrepreneurs speak to, to the investors and, and, and it may be right. And it may be wrong. It really depends on, on the, um, on the entrepreneur. I think what I have grown to see in, in some of the, the industry, maybe more so in the sort of non-digital stuff, so the pure med device, you know, implantable surgical techniques, et cetera. While, you know, the, the CVC or the investor may not be interested at that specific stage, it may be good to sort of keep them warm on two reasons. Once you mature enough, you know, they, they could provide quite significant value on top of, um, you know, just money. But even, even more so when you're looking for them to be an investor on the next round, just to keep it warm in, in terms of getting feedback of what they would like to see in order for them to invest, right? Because at the end of the day, why would an entrepreneur want a CVC? Because it's an sort of an acquisition target for them, right? It keeps them close. Um, and even if they're not end up acquiring the company, it sort of enables some sort of a competition. So that's sort of the, the, the positive side of why one would want to be involved with a CVC and, and on top of when, what we discussed earlier in terms of in-kind value we, we provide on top of an investment, right? The sort of flip side of it, and, and I think it's not a and j or a Medtronic thing, it could go with any CVC and, and potentially even with, with farm, you know, corporates move slow, right? I mean, we, we have our innovation group and, and we aim to be as quick as possible, but, you know, we have our guidelines and we have our rules and sort of approval thresholds. And that goes without saying any, any corporate would have that. Sure, the smaller ones would probably have a, a smaller matrix of approvals. Uh, but like any, you know, big military organization, right? Uh, if you want to steer a ship two angles to the right, it takes some time to steer it, right? So even though an organization would want to move fast, there are some limitations that, you know, you can simply move around. So I'd say that that's one part of it. Um, I think the other part of it is, you know, if you're lo looking to transform sort of a way of thinking for a traditional corporate um, and that sort of goes to the steering the ship situation, you can really flip it on its head. It's sort of a slow change that happens in time. And the only thing that really moves a big corporate is by a competitor making a very aggressive move into that space. So it's sort of a, a, a second, third, fourth to market means second, third, fourth market share. Um, so that, that's sort of where an entrepreneur would say, okay, having a corporate is great, but by the time they figure out what they want to do, it may be a bit too late. So I think that's, that's part of it. And maybe even more so on the med device side, right? There is a very strong competition between most of the med tech players, recognizing there are sort of like medium players and small size players, um, that could sort of, you know, come from, from behind and, and nab a company. But usually when you have a, a single corporate investor um, into a medtech company, that means other are sort of barred in a sense from, from talking to that company because you know, in the nature of, of the businesses, most of us would be very aggressive on a company we would take rights um, or you know, just by, by the nature of, of being an investor means that the others don't wanna be involved with us because we're competitors. Um, so that's just the rules of the game, it appears. I, I'm a, a strong proponent of having two corporate investors in a company, but the reality of things is it just doesn't always happen. So I think that's, that's sort of the way it is. So you mentioned this notion of timing. We've heard this before about CBCs. I mean, how do you just handle this situation? Once again, I get approached very regularly by med tech startups raising capital. And you hear it very 
regularly. They're like, okay, I'm raising 5 million and I already have three out of the five committed. I just need two more. Or I'm raising 20 million. I have 15 out of the 20 already committed. I just need five more. Or they're blank and they're like, hey, I'm, I'm raising a $12 million round and I'm looking for a lead. Um, but the ones that say I, I have 2 million left or 5 million left in my round and I'm, you know, let, what are we in right now? We're in late February for all those listening in right now. Um, and I need to close this round by April or May, let's just say. And all of a sudden, let's just say I introduce this startup to you and you looking like, wow, that's really interesting. I'd love to fill out that round or I'd love to put the 2 million or the 5 million, whatever it may be. But then all of a sudden you have to run it up this flagpole, right? How long does that take? And, and, and I'm not even specifically talking about JJDC, but just this notion of corporate venture capital overall. Um, can you guys fill in these last quick things or does the bureaucracy and timing and bigness of a company get in the way sometimes and you miss out on opportunity? Yeah, so I think you're, you're raising a good point. And I, I think that's pr probably one of the reasons JJI, Johnson Johnson Innovation was formed is to facilitate sort of moving fast on deals when we need to. Originally, I'd say that was more towards the non-equity part. So, you know, when, when you would sort of see a company in, in Israel, right, you'd need the scientific folks to come all the way from corporate in, in New Jersey. And, you know, it's a longer flight and it's, it's difficult to bring in the folks from the U.S. So you'd rather bring somebody from Europe. So that's why Israel is part of Europe. And you could bring in a neuroscience lead from London instead of, you know, waiting for, for somebody to come from, from the U.S. So I think that's sort of one of the reasons the innovation centers were formed. Um, and sort of enable earlier and, and quicker deals. On the JGDC side specifically, I mean, we, we're a, a lean and mean bunch, right? So uh, we're like 14 investors, I think, worldwide today. Um, and we meet twice a, twice a month, right? Um, for an investment committee where we sort of discuss all of our deals. So the way our process works is, you know, we, we try to move fast as, as quickly as possible. We have the opportunity if we need to, to do approvals by email, if there is, you know, a competitive process or if there is a, a closing timeline that's very tight. So uh, we do have the capability of doing that. In terms of, you know, what happens in real life, I can tell you specifically, we ended up competing um, on a specific company versus two other VCs, one in the US, one in Europe. They already had two term sheets on the table for the company. From the minute we knew we had support internally to do the deal, um, we got a term sheet, did diligence and signed everything within a month and a half. Okay, so everything, uh, A to C. Uh, did we have cases where, you know, it took nine months? Sure, um, but we, you know, a, a lot of this accounts for, and, and apologies for the lawyers listening, uh, a lot of lawyer fights, to be honest, you know, both on our end and their end. Um, but realistically, we try to be very cognizant of, of timeline for the company as well. I think one of the first questions I ask a company when we sort of go into the CDA stage and start diligence is, okay, when's your cash out day, right? Just to ensure, you know, our process doesn't hinder the company in terms of fundraising and, you know, God forbid, end up either going under or needing to take another convertible note from, from their existing investors and running a fire drill, because I, I don't want to do that to myself, neither to the, to the founders or the, the entrepreneurs. So that's sort of the first question to understand what's my timeline, right? So, um, we can move fast if we need to. Um, realistically, I'd like to take things steady and slow, but if we need to move fast, we could do it pretty quickly, similar to any other VCs, I'd say, maybe a day or two later. But <laughs> So I'm, I'm sensitive to time here. Thank you for sharing that because it was super valuable. I have one last question I just want to sign off with. Um, 
all those listening in, startups who are ready to reach out to one more investor um, and add them to the list. You mentioned that you spend a lot of your time, 20, 25% of your week meeting new people, networking. How do you, how do you get your deal flow? Like, and I know it's not a one-stop shop, but does everyone just attack you from all sides just because they know you and you go to conferences and you reach out yourself? Like, what does your deal flow look like? How do you get deal flow? Yeah, so it's it's a very good question, and I think it's it's very interesting that you're posing this question because my main complaint now moving to California is is sort of the difference we had in Israel and Europe versus here in California because you know Israel has a albeit a very successful but still a very small uh, med tech or even healthcare community right it's not a huge country so it's not a huge community. And it was sort of a one degree of separation country. So if anybody wanted to reach you, it was either through, you know, a, a alumni group or a military friend or, you know, a, 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 a colleague. It's very simple to get to you in Israel. So deal flow, both on the Israel and European side, I think was 60% inbound, 40% um, proactively done in terms of actually hunting for deals. Um, whereas here in, in California, I think it's sort of more towards the, active proactive hunting of deals because there's so much competition and so much money flowing around and so many VCs you have to be a bit more um, aggressive in, into looking into deals so I think the way my process works I, I try to have periodic conversations with our various VC partners uh, go to as many conferences as possibly you know uh, I can especially in those COVID days where there are hardly any physical conferences but you know knock on wood it starts to pick up it appears um, over March but um, I think really trying to speak to partners, to speak to people, um, being very much out there, you know, one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm speaking on this podcast, right? And, and, you know, trying to get my, my name and my brand out there for people to, to feel free to come in and, and speak to me. I think the other issue is, you know, people see, sort of as, you, as we've said before, J&J is this big company and, you know, it may be too early maybe my personal philosophy, I'd rather know of a company when it's really early and say, hey, I like the entrepreneur. I like the technology. Sure, it may be a bit too early for us to invest right now, knowing our operating company partners saying, you know, they'd like this to be a little more de-risk. But I'd rather know about it and sort of follow up when the company have this sort of every six, 12 months or even every quarter, depending on their stage, some sort of a short 30, 40 minute update saying, hey, you know, this is a significant update. I should ping my, my operating company partners or, you know, just to make sure they even update the company themselves, right? That, that's even sometimes better. So I'd rather know about something too early rather than know about something that's too late when, you know, they've either fundraised with, with a competitor or have gone to a competitor. So that's, that's sort of my personal philosophy. And yeah, that accounts for a lot of, you know, very good filing and sort of managing your, your schedule correctly and, and not overstepping on a lot of things. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, it pays out. So um, that's sort of at least my my two cents. So you heard it here first, and we're finishing right on the hour here. So first and foremost, Tamir Mayri, Director of Venture Investments at JJDC, now over on the West Coast, originally from Israel, but now over on the West Coast of the United States. I want to say thank you very much for your time. We've, we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, we've talked about the differences of CVCs and how they operate, some of the downsides, some certainly some of the upsides and even the strategy involved in between. Um, and now a lot of us know a lot more of the inner workings of J&J. &J. So 
I want to say thank you very much for your time. This is the MedTech Money podcast series where we aim to demystify raising and investing capital in the MedTech industry. And I hope that this also helped your brand and all those listening out, reach out to Tamir if you need him. Thank you so much, Tamir. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Giovanni. Pleasure to be with you and thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.